Chapter 2 of the Mind the Paint Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Mind the Paint Girl by Louis Tracy. Chapter 2 The New Star. Although Jay's was not rich, he was not poor. He had a fair private income in addition to his pay. He was well-connected, the envied possessor of uncles and elderly relatives highly placed in the services, in the war office and in other government departments. In a word, with that steady attention to work which our British variety of nepotism insists upon, he was certain to find the way of promotion made easy. Nor was there any valid reason why he should not marry. With due economy, he and his wife could not only follow the beaten track of regimental life, but meander into some of its luxurious byways. He would have no difficulty about houses, furniture, a dog-cart, the maintenance of a couple of polo ponies, or the purchase of a smart frock for Mrs. Jay's when the G.O.C.'s garden party came round. To say the least of it, such conditions warranted a young man in spending a joyous week in London during the height of the season, and yet Jay's would have been far happier had fate compelled him to endure the blistering ennui of some sand-encircled cantonment in the Punjab. There he would perforce attend early morning parade, read and smoke or sleep after luncheon, curse the climate at decent intervals, whack a polo ball over an iron-bound maiden, play bridge or billiards at the club, and dine with twenty hard-bitten Britons like himself. Lily Paradell would have been six thousand miles away, and it was not in his nature to sigh after the impossible. But in London, her enchanting, distracting personality yielded odd half-hours of delight, and filled the remainder of existence with a species of sullen despair. Not every morning, because rehearsals were exigent, but as often as she could spare her time, he met her by appointment. Weather permitting, they went to one or other of the parks. She would visit the zoo every day if he would take her, because she loved animals and had a way with her that conquered the doubting shyness of the creatures of the wild, or, if walking men to trudge through mud and rain, they would drive to the National Gallery, South Kensington, the British Museum, the Wallace Collection. Jays hailed a dismal sky almost with delight, merely because of the educational value of those quiet strolls through galleries and exhibitions. He assured himself that some day he would defy convention and marry Lily Paradell, and he took a keen joy in the task of communicating to her now such scanty knowledge of the arts as he possessed. She was a willing listener, never bored or weary. She had a marvellous memory, forgot no hint of the right way to pronounce foreign and classical names, asked for reasons and applied them correctly when tested over new ground. With it all, there was the pleasing consciousness that Lily looked up to him as a paragon of erudition. To justify her faith in him, he bought booklets on Turner, on Correggio, on the Elgin marbles, on the china of Bow and Chelsea and Meissen, and studied them privily in his bedroom at the club. Then, helped by a quick glance at a catalogue, he would hold forth as to the atmospheric depth of Ulysses deriding Polyphemus, 
or the exquisite glaze and colouring of a Dresden shepherdess, anno 1760. In truth, he was teaching himself some of these things, and more than once the girl's innate taste, helped by an alert brain which remembered everything, caught him tripping. Nevertheless, his manners and speech were different from Lily's, which still kept a touch of her humble beginnings, and every night, after the sweet intimacy of the homeward drive to Mrs. Upjohn's apartments, the Lily Paradell of the Pandora Theatre was Lily Upjohn, in the Kennington Park Road, where she and her mother shared a bedroom and sitting-room en suite, which, in this instance, meant folding doors. He would leave the girl's humble abode with the shivering foreboding of the day when it would be necessary that his mother should call there. Mrs. Jay's, poor lady, little dreamed of the impending cataclysm. Daughter of a baronet and widow of a distinguished general, she was a good and charitable woman, beloved by all who knew her, but intensely proud of her birth and breeding. What would she say when she heard one of her sons marrying a Pandora girl? And what would she think when she met Mrs. Upjohn, a typical cockney, without an H in her vocabulary, save in instances where it was superfluous? Indeed, would the two ever meet? Would not the shocked and anguished gentlewoman emphatically refuse to stain her skirts with the dust of Kennington Park Road? It was no light problem that tortured the big, red-faced, well-groomed captain of North Devons, and there is little wonder that he shirked its solution. So he drifted helplessly through those scattered hours of happiness, and those long-drawn watches of the day and night, when care sat heavily on his shoulders and thus lent himself to the greater folly of letting, I dare not, wait upon, I would. At last came the Monday, when Lily Paradell would be made or marred in her profession. It was a big thing for a girl still in her teens to be given a star turn in the leading theatre of London devoted to musical comedy. If she succeeded, she would leap at a bound to the front rank, if, by some mischance, her song did not catch the public fancy, or if nervousness or excitement robbed her for the moment of her witchery of voice and manner, years might pass before another such splendid opportunity presented itself. In the one event, the number would simply be dropped because Carlton Smythe was noted for a Napoleonic quickness of decision. In the other, were there not a score of girls in the chorus, capable of singing it well, and feverishly eager to prove their fitness? Jays had seen little of Lily during the past three days. Every spare minute on Friday and Saturday had been devoted to rehearsal. As for Sunday, Vincent Bland, the composer, to whose initiative her selection for the new part was wholly due, insisted that she should remain in bed all day. Lily, of course, rebelled but Bland belied his name by firm threats of the direst consequences if she disobeyed his orders. On the Monday, however, Jays broke the custom which permitted Lily to reach the theatre unaccompanied and convoyed her thither in a cab. As they crossed Waterloo Bridge and the magnificent panorama of London, from St Paul's to the Houses of Parliament spread its glories before their eyes, the girl turned impulsively to the man she regarded in a curiously impersonal way, as her lover. Nico, she said, are you bringing anyone to the theatre tonight? Bringing anyone? he repeated. Yes, have you taken only one stall? 
I'm not exactly what you might call tiny, but I couldn't slop over into two, he replied, failing a vague uneasiness with clumsy humour. But you have a brother and a mother, she persisted. Why haven't you invited one or both to come with you? I know you would find it difficult to introduce me to your people. Oh, let me say what I want to say. Surely you and I can speak the truth to each other sometimes. But tonight you might have told them that I was a friend, that you were interested in my success. He was so dumbfounded that he blurted out a more convincing answer than he could have contrived by using his wits. Honestly, Lil, I never thought of it, he vowed. My mind has been running on you these last few days to the exclusion of everything else. It would have been quite an undertaking, too. My mother lives in Huntingdon, and Bob is up to his eyes on business. He and some other fellows are taking on a big tract of land in Rhodesia, and they have heaps to do before they sail. For a little while there was silence. No heavy vehicles were near, and the jingle of bells on a group of hansoms or scampering toward the strand seemed to chime with the golden reverie of a summer evening. "'I suppose your ma doesn't even know you're in town,' said Lily suddenly. Jays loathed that word ma and hoped he had cured her of using it. If he had been better versed in the wayward heart of woman, he would have understood that the lapse was intentional, a verbal thrust at all snobbishness and class prejudice. "'No,' he said gruffly, I did not tell my mother I had obtained short leave, because she would have expected me to give her at least one night at home, and I wanted every possible minute for you. Sons are mean in that way, but, at any rate, I try not to hurt her feelings. The girl's eyes were shining like sapphires. Seeing nothing, they were gazing fixedly at some early diners in the Savoy restaurant. But her emotions bubbled forth without restraint. Dear Neko, is he grumpy, then? And isn't Lily Paradell a horrid little wretch? It's nerves, Nico, just nerves. I'm sitting here at your side, demure as a church mouse to all appearances, but I'm really singing and dancing, flinging myself madly around the stage, a la Lottie Corrins, in Terra boom dieu Yes, I know it's stupid and maybe positively harmful, but I can't help it. It's in my blood. Even you men get it occasionally, don't you, when you gamble away a year's income on a game of cards or join in a rush for some new goldfield. And I am gambling tonight. This is my toss of the dice. It's make or break with me at 9.15. Now there were a hundred ways in which a half-hysterical girl might be soothed by a man who loved her, but Captain Nicholas Jays did not adopt any of them. You're frightened. That's what's the matter with you, he laughed. Only a case of blue funk. Every fellow gets it the first time he goes into action, but it vanishes when the bullets begin to sail past harmlessly. But it vanishes when the bullets begin to sail past harmlessly. But if having the stage to yourself means going into action, I got over that difficulty before I was fourteen, she said. Then she turned and looked at him, marking his stolid aspect. You're a bit of a humbug yourself, Nico she tittered. You have taught me heaps about pictures and statues and old furniture, but you really haven't got a glimmer of art in your soul. You're just a stiff, matter-of-fact soldier man, and that's the best and the worst I can say of you. He was stirred to defend himself. You might add that I'm also your very loyal friend and well-wisher, he declared. 
Perhaps the girl was vouchsafed some glimpse of the mortal struggle raging within, which, in its way, gave a pathetic force to his colourless words, for she placed a hand impulsively on his arm. "'I'm more certain of that, Nico, than of carrying the house with me tonight,' she said, and there was a tender note in her voice which made divinest music in his ears. "'But here we are at the theatre. You'll wait for me, of course.' A smart handsome if I knock him, otherwise a four-wheeler with a broken-winded Gigi. Goodbye and good luck. She smiled dazzlingly from the stage door and was gone. He drove to his club, changed his clothes, ate a hearty meal, and was in his stall at the Pandora before the curtain rose. He was familiar with all the songs and most of the lines of the Duchess of Brixton, and soon discovered that the author and composer had given Lily every reasonable chance of finding her feet before her own special item was reached. She had been promoted from the chorus to a definite character, and had something to say now and then. It was noticeable that her speaking voice filled the theatre, and Jay's, slight as was his knowledge of stagecraft, gasped the essential fact that the hard-won experience of the music hall was enabling her to make her personality felt without effort. A printed slip attached to the programme announced that during the first act, Miss Lily Paradell would sing a new song entitled Mind the Paint, and the presence of a number of critics showed that the management was booming the change. As it happened, Jays had not inquired as to the particular incident in the story which led up to Lily's effort, and the introductory symphony was so brief that he was almost surprised when she bounded forward from the back of the stage and began to sing. She had not uttered a complete line before he knew that she was easily first in a cast which included some of the most notable musical comedy actresses in London. Her fresh, pure voice had in it a joyous lilt which appealed to the audience from the opening note, and her light-hearted audacity gave point and significance to some commonplace lyrics. When she danced to the music of the chorus, that same rhythmic refrain which she had hummed in Hyde Park, it was as though some woodland nymph were rapturously displaying her delight in life, the ecstasy of youth, the half-shy yet all-conquering sense of maiden sovereignty. Instantly the house was on the qui vive for the rising of a new star in the theatrical firmament. The hush of expectation was succeeded by a low murmur of gratified discovery. A subtle sense of unanimity in approval spread throughout the crowded audience, and the thunderous applause that broke forth at the conclusion of the last verse was stilled while the lithe, graceful form was dancing, only to crash out in long-sustained volume as Lily bowed herself breathlessly to the wings, darting one last vivid look at the place where she knew Jays was seated. The tumult could not be quieted until the conductor's baton tapped sharply on the music stand and the orchestra played the symphony once more. Lily reappeared, smiling and self-possessed. She sang an encore without any sign of exhaustion and when the chorus was reached, the gallery joined in. Mind the paint! Mind the paint! A girl is not a sinner just because she's not a saint. But my heart shall hold you dearer. You may come a little nearer. If you'll only mind the paint, mind the paint.
The glance with which Lily rewarded her unknown friends among the gods was one of the many unrehearsed triumphs of the evening. When she danced again, she had the intoxicating ichor of success in her veins. This time there was no restraint, no subconscious memory of stage directions and the studious posturings of her ballet master. She threw her very soul into motion. Her dancing was the physical expression of an ecstatic spirit. And the house wanted more. Londoners, despite the opinion of their American cousins, are quick as any people in the world to recognise real talent, especially in the theatre, and this acutely critical audience realised that they were privileged to witness an event which would be the talk of the town next day. But Lily neither sang nor danced again that evening. Carlton Smythe, hidden in the corner of a box, had signalled a decision negative to the stage manager. For one thing, he did not wish to subject a valuable recruit to undue strain. For another, he was fully content with the sensational effort already secured. So the girl curtsied and laughed delightedly and wafted kisses from her fingertips to the gallery, and when the orchestra increased the tension by replaying the chorus, the recipients of those kisses testified their appreciation thereby by howling lustily. Mind the paint, mind the paint, a girl is not a sinner just because she's not a saint. Such moments are rare even in the lives of the gifted. They are precious even to genius. On the stage they are proclaimed aloud with trumpets. In the studio, in the laboratory, at the littered table of the writer, they come in silence. But the artist and thinker quiver under their mighty influence, whether the glad paean is chanted by the voice of the multitude or whispered in the soul's ear by some unseen and awful presence. As achievements rank, it was perhaps a trivial thing that a pretty girl should have shaken the Pandora Theatre from floor to ceiling by a pleasing performance of a song and dance, but Lily Paradell had climbed just a step beyond the high level of artistry imposed by the London stage. Grace, harmony, charm of voice and movement, these were the essentials of her craft. She had superadded a haunting memory of beauty, a sense of unfettered and elusive youth, a new and fascinating variant of the eternal puzzle of femininity. So the patrons of the Pandora simmered with glee because she had tickled their jaded appetites so unexpectedly and grinned with merriment when the principal comedian gagged them back to the right humour by tripping the impressionable Duke of Brixton, whose instant and callow ardour inspired him to pursuit of the vanished attraction. No, you don't, Strawberry, he cackled. This great metropolis wants that fairy yet a while, so keep off of it. Mind the pint. Captain Nicholas Jays, after being carried away like the rest by general enthusiasm, recovered his wits in becoming aware of a certain blankness behind the footlights when Lily Paradal had disappeared, a quite natural feeling which was usurped by a highly disagreeable one. Within a space of five minutes or less, the girl he loved had reached the topmost rung of the ladder in her profession. With average good fortune and good health, she was now fairly established as a popular idol. Newspaper paragraphs, interviews, portraits, 
picture postcards, the clatter of clubs and society, aided and abetted by the solid claims of self-interest which must sway the proprietor of the Pandora Theatre, would put her on a pinnacle from which she need not be dislodged for many a year. King Demos had spoken, and with no uncertain judgment. It was as though he, Nico Jays, standing in front of his company on parade, had been suddenly promoted by his sovereign to command the Aldershot division. Such a miracle could never happen to him, but its equivalent had happened to Lily Paradal. In very truth, he had obeyed Emerson's behest by hitching his wagon to a star, and the notion had a soul-sickening addendum in the knowledge that he was a very plodding wagon to be attached to such a particularly bright and dazzling star. Hardly realising what he was about, he rose from his seat, trod on several people's toes while making blindly for the stairs, and earned a good deal of angry comment by interfering with one of the leading comedian's most excruciating jokes. Angry, pleased, excited, dejected, at once gratified by the fact that none of these feather-brained fools in the audience could rob him of his intimacy with the girl they had so recently learnt to admire, and aflame with jealous dread, lest this night's ovation might prove the beginning of the end of his romance. He reached the foyer and gulped down a whisky and soda. A hand fell heavily on his shoulder, and a guttural voice said, Ach, Gott, Nico! You swallowed that liquor, staying a pilchner. He turned. A tall, fair-headed, faultlessly dressed German was at his elbow. Hello, Baron, he said. You here? But of course you would be. You're one of the recognised Pandora boys. Someone told me you have been here most nights last week, Nigel. But what do you think of the new dancer? Isn't she limit? Jays bestirred himself. It was imperative that von Rettenmeyer, a highly popular attaché at the German embassy and an inveterate gad about in society, should not have cause to quiz him. You mean Miss Paradell? he said. She's more than a new dancer. Why, man alive, she has proved herself the leading actress of them all. She is good, yes, superb, but there are others who don't get a yance. There's Enid Moncrief, for instance. Now, if Caldon smite... The voluble baron checked himself sharply, his good-humoured face crinkled in a welcoming smile. Hello, Carlton, he cried. I hope you're pleased. Congratulations. Miss Baradell is a beach. My dear baron, said a stout little man, who had approached the bar in company with Carlton Smythe, you really shouldn't mix Americanisms with your English. I suppose you meant to imply that Miss Paradell resembles a certain luscious fruit, whereas you tell us that she is a tree. I said a beech, not a peach, protested von Rettenmeyer. Yes, that's the trouble. Why don't you carry a supply of jujubes? You're a bit of a cough drop yourself, lal, snickered the baron, whose acquaintance with English slang was profound, though his pronunciation might be faulty. The manager nodded to Jays, whom he knew slightly. A bottle of ninety-six and half a dozen glasses, he said to the girl behind the bar. We're just going to drink Miss Paradell's health, he added, addressing the group collectively. Mind you, this is not for publication, but that song of hers was the one thing wanted. 
Souvenirs, 500 performance of the Duchess of Brixton, souvenirs a shilling each, photographs of Miss Lily Paradell, and words and music of Mind the Paint, complete in souvenir, one shilling, chanted Lionel Roper, whose bald head was glistening after the excitement of seeing his pretty protégé safely launched in the smooth waters of success. Five hundred, well, I hope so, said Smythe, watching the champagne creaming in the glasses. You're a pessimist, Carlton, an incurable pessimist, spluttered the stout stockbroker. You know as well as I do that you've found the real thing in Lily Paradell. Quite true, my boy, quite true, if only she wasn't so confoundedly attractive. Con? Roper's white eyebrows rose to his bare scalp in speechless astonishment. Yes, I mean what I say. Every titled young ass in town. Suddenly the astute Smythe remembered that Chase was a privileged friend of the new star. Ah, well, he said. Here's to her anyhow. The glasses were lifted, but Chase swallowed with the good wine a potion bitter as gall. End of section two.